Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show, and thank you for inviting me into your home this week. Uh, Lots of things to go over, but first I wanted to encourage you to check out my podcast that I posted uh, with Melanie Tracek-King. She is an educator on critical thinking, and we had quite a nice talk for about an hour or so on why knowledge is not enough. You know, critical thinking is not just about knowing things. It's a skill set. It's something you do. And we had a great time talking about that. So if that is something that is of all at all of interest to you, then uh, please check that out. And of course, uh, really excitingly, I had my university professor, Dr. Rod Dubrow Marshall, uh, appeared on my live show on Friday. So if you guys were at all curious about who taught me about coercive control, well, we had a great chat and there was some calls that came in. He got to take some uh, questions from you guys. And uh, we agreed that him that he would definitely want to come back. So I encourage you guys to check that out. Now let's get on with your questions. Negaduck9. You've talked about a number of cults on your channel, but one I have not seen you mention is the United Nawubian Nation of Moors. It's a small group that moved around the U.S. and was most recently in Georgia. I became aware of it years ago when one of its members was hired to work in my office. Its leader, Dwight York, was convicted in 2004 of child molestation and other crimes and sentenced to 135 years in prison. The aspect of the cult that I found incomprehensible was how many times its lore changed. It went through African, Islamic, Egyptian, Native American, Jewish phases before landing on being descendants of aliens from the planet Risk. York himself changed his name and title and the name of the group many times as well. Some of his followers did leave because of the changes in doctrine. However, others stuck with him and are still sticking with him, despite all the evidence that he was making it up as he went along. I can see how people could get drawn into a high-control group and gradually buy into stranger and stranger beliefs as they became more and more invested. But when the leader keeps changing the doctrine, how can his followers continue to believe? I'd be interested in any light you could shine on this. All right. Thank you very much for this. And as a matter of fact, I, I was so fascinated by your question because you could actually be describing Scientology as well. Now, it didn't go through all these various cultural phases that uh, these Nubian folks did, but every other thing you've described here happened in Scientology, and I'm going to tell you, happens in a lot of other cultic groups. They start out as A, and then culturally or because of societal changes or because the leader simply changes his mind or gets off on some new tack— or is trying to attract new membership, they will change their tune and they will change the actual belief set. And let's talk about this in Scientology terms so all of you kind of get more what I'm talking about rather than go into this uh, Nubian group. Uh, but what I'm saying here, you know, is applicable across the boards. Scientology, for example, began as Dianetics, a science Those same followers 
left, a lot of them left after they learned that, that Dianetics was not going to give them what they wanted, but some of them stuck around as Hubbard developed the Thetan theory and this whole idea of spirituality and theta and N, and N theta and this sort of like, what? What is this? This more faith-based idea? Talk about a paradigm shift. I don't know how you make a bigger one than to go from a science to a faith. And yet Hubbard got away with that, and he morphed Dianetics into Scientology. But even with Scientology, it then developed through the 1950s in about 10 or 20 different iterations of emphasis and priority in terms of what it was trying to address or handle. Hubbard talked about this state of clear, but he constantly changed the goalposts as to what clear was, how, you, how it manifested, and what it even meant. You had, for a period of time, not only a clear, you had a, a theta clear. You had a cleared theta clear. You had a cleared OT or a theta OT. Or you had various titles being bandied about. None of that exists in current Scientology. Then it morphed into the idea that um, exteriorization was the goal, and it was all about getting a Thetan out of his head, having out-of-body experiences. That was the thing that was going to make everybody free. And that went on for a couple years until Hubbard went, you know, this ain't really doing it. Nobody's really at the level where they can really easily get out of their head what we need to do is objective processing where they need to orient themselves in the physical universe because they're so disoriented and confused and hypnotized that when we tell them to do something, they can't even do it because they're not even receiving the or understanding the command we're giving them. And the entire emphasis went on to objective processing where people were touching walls and things like that. And that is when the training routines were developed, the TRs that you guys hear all about. That was 1955, and um, that was just the first five years. Everything I just told you was just first five years of Dianetics and Scientology. He also went into how life is a game and how there's games processing and a whole bunch of auditing all about life as a game and breaking it all down into its component parts, and, and there's freedoms and barriers and purposes, and that's what makes up a game, and that's what we're going to audit, and that's how we're going to make clears. And then that didn't quite fly. And then it was on to responsibility. And there were other things in between all this. There was a whole slew of Scientology lectures and uh, materials on radiation and solving radiation as a problem. Why? Because in 1957, the nuclear threat and the Cold War were like, everybody was freaking out. And Hubbard was like, oh, I've got solutions to that. Here's what we're doing. And he gave two congresses on the subject of uh, nuclear power and radiation and its effects on a body and its effects on a spirit. And that was a whole bit of, if you came into Scientology around 1957, that's what you were going to be hearing about as well as past lives. They started really pumping that up. They actually wrote a book called Have You Lived Before This Life, where there were case studies of past life stories from Scientologists and their auditing. Again, the emphasis is going here and going there, and the materials were changing and evolving as a result of this. This is what Scientologists study now is this sort of chronology of Scientology that is covered in what is called the basics. This whole slew of all the books that were written in sequence, all the lectures that were given in sequence, and if you follow all of this, 
you see Scientology changing its face over and over and over and over again until the 1960s when it finally started settling into a more static, permanent state with this bridge to total freedom and the grade chart with all of its levels that didn't exist until the 1960s. And that is where it sort of sort of started solidifying into its current form that y'all are familiar with and that we talk about so much. But if you tried to talk about Scientology in the 1950s, it would be which Scientology? And even after, then after it started solidifying, there were still massive changes to the dogma and the techniques. Massive. How you addressed a thetan, how you audited a, a body thetan, how you dealt with uh, past life incidents. There were lots and lots and lots of techniques developed for this. And each of those techniques could reflect a whole different way of addressing or going after different theories, you could say, as to how to take apart the trauma or mental mass or charge, as Hubbard called it, that Thetans carried around with them. So we have this constantly evolving, changing, shifting landscape, yet all of it fits under the umbrella of Scientology. And current Scientologists have no problem whatsoever accepting that Scientology is and always has been all of these things. So I can't imagine that um, this guy uh, York's followers were any different. You know, some of them see these changes and go, oh, no, 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 that's a bridge too far. I'm not doing that. That's crazy. I, I agreed with this, but I don't agree with this. And that's the basis, by the way, in Scientology and with others of splintering and splinter groups and how things, how various denominations form within this world is because people will agree to so much and then they'll go, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to agree to that. And then they'll go off and do their own thing. And then they'll claim they're doing the real thing. And the founder or the cult leader or whatever will continue on with his movement and decry those people and call them enemies and say they were always bad and we must not pay any attention to them because they don't know what they're talking about. Excuse me. And you have to follow the, the leader, right? Um, so this is how the evolution of these groups has always worked. Now, when you ask about, you know, how is it that people can stick with this and continue to believe, it's because of their faith in the authority and the genius of the leader. The leader gets to set the course and tone for his movement. And if it's one of change and growth and evolution, or in the case of Scientology, as they might phrase it, research, right? Hubbard, Hubbard used science words to describe what he was doing, but he was really just changing his mind from one day to the next. And trying to fit, again, with uh, messaging or with an approach that would match the current culture. And after Hubbard died, of course, all that stopped because you can't change Scientology that radically. David Miscavige doesn't have the power or authority to be able to do things like that. He can make pretty big changes and has, but he can't say, hey, you know what? We're not going to run engrams anymore. Or, you know what, body thetans aren't a thing anymore. David Miscavige doesn't have that level of power in Scientology. He has to take what's there and he has to make it work. And that's what the constant repackaging and reworking of the materials and the deleting of all the troublesome 
problematic lines out of those works, right? Keeping up with the culture. That's how David Miscavige has been utilizing or dealing with the changing cultural situation that Scientology faces. And it's and he's not been dealing with it well because he doesn't go in and change the materials that drastically. He changes this, he changes that, he you know, he modifies this and that, he deletes this kind of stuff. Oh, we're not going to talk about that anymore. For example, there's a whole book L. Ron Hubbard wrote called Hymn of Asia, which is Hubbard basically uh, falsely claiming that he is the reincarnated uh, incarnation of the Buddha come back from the West uh, with flaming red hair in order to merge the East and the West in this, you know, unification of Buddhism and science. And Hubbard did that because there was in the 1960s and 70s an incredible push on spirituality. And, uh, you know, when the Beatles took up transcendental meditation and it was all the rage, well, oh, whoa, 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 Buddha, 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 right? And Hubbard was all about Buddha from early on. So he just drummed this up, wrote a whole book called Hymn of Asia, M.I. Matea. He keeps asking throughout this book, Matea being this, this reincarnation. And of course he wasn't. And his whole idea, his whole framing of that prophecy was completely wrong. But nobody in the Western world was going to go do the research and find out. So they just kind of went along with it until in the 1990s, um, they tried to push this forward and actually invited a, a contingent of Buddhist monks to Clearwater, Florida. And they came and there was this big huff a buff about how they were going to, you know, finally get this sort of validation from the Buddhist world of Hubbard being this incarnation. Well, the exact opposite happened. And suddenly nobody was talking about, you know, uh, can, uh, working with or um, being validated by any Buddhists. Suddenly that was just not being talked about. And Hymn of Asia was just quietly retired as a whole book. And you don't find it anymore in Scientology's lore or in their bookstores or in their organizations. They just don't talk about it anymore. That's kind of what I'm talking about, right? It's like if people aren't even aware of those changes because they've just been shoved under the rug then what is there to argue with? And if they are aware of it, then they go, well, yeah, but that was then and this is now. And what you're really looking at is just more uh, sort of um, manifestations of cognitive dissonance, right? The fact that you can have two disparate, two different conflicting ideas in your mind at the same time, and this causes noise, this causes discomfort, this causes like this conflict is like, well, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. And it, yet it has to make sense. This has to be true. I have to resolve this in such a way that I can continue to believe that L. Ron Hubbard is a genius philosopher and educator and all of this is valid. So therefore, I'm going to resolve these two facts by choosing this one or creating a whole new one of some kind of amalgamation of this and that will calm down the dissonance in my mind and now that it's not there anymore I don't have to worry about that anymore that whole process that I just described to you happens every single day in every single person's head many many times you don't have to think about it too much your brain just does it and when it gets really uncomfortable you might experience something called a crisis of faith 
or a conflict or a problem, which is, you know, where you really have to apply some some frontal lobe brain power to it in order to resolve it. And maybe you have to go read some stuff or look at some stuff or talk to somebody in order to help resolve it because the conflict is too much for you. And in those kind of cases, people will sometimes break out of that spell or break away from that base understanding or truth. And that's when they leave. That's when they get out. Uh, So that can be a result of cognitive dissonance too, is you can reason yourself right out of it. But what we tend to use that term for is to describe the way that people will continue to rationalize or justify a belief despite clear-cut evidence or ideas or conflicting you know, data that runs smack into it. And that's basically the, the answer to your question using Scientology rather than, you know, again, York's group, because I'm not familiar with York's group, but I am familiar with cognitive dissonance, and I know exactly how it works, and what you're describing is, is pitch-perfect uh, cognitive dissonance. It's also, as I mentioned, not something that just happens in little tiny groups or in cults, But we see the phenomena so prominently displayed there that it's easier for us to use that to talk about. So there you go. Jonathan Perry, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on this war on woke. The anti-woke crowd is starting to get really culty. No one could even define what it means. It's a thought-stopping cliche that's becoming insidious. The Silicon Valley Bank went under because they went woke. What does that even mean? What is a woke bank? I was wondering if you had any insights to this phenomenon that you would like to share. Oh, boy. Okay, so here's what I'm going to say about this, because I don't, you know, my effort here has never been to make people upset or offend people or get, you know, to get their goat up or whatever. And this whole term of woke is something that is just incendiary right now on both sides of the ideological spectrum. And there are reasons for this. And that's what I wanted to talk about more is how I sort of look at this as somebody who has some, you know, more than a little bit of familiarity with cultic thinking. The fact of the matter is that from what I see, from my perspective, I see cultic behavior on both sides of this equation. And this, and, and before anybody starts like losing their mind, that I'm not saying that if you believe that being woke is a good thing or you believe being woke is a bad thing, that you are a cultist. I am not saying that. I am saying that there are far ends of both ends of this political spectrum, this ideological spectrum. And if you can't acknowledge that fact, that's when you might be on one of those extreme ends. <laughs> because the only people I've run into who seem to have this idea that their side is flawless and perfect and never makes any mistakes or errors or does anything wrong or even has an extreme end are the people who are on the extreme end. They can't see it. They're literally blind to their own bias. And they believe so firmly in the goodness and rightness of their ideas that they can't let themselves question those ideas. And that's where, and and more importantly, they can't question the behavior of themselves and others around them. And this is left and right. This is far left and far right that I'm talking about now. And it's us people kind of more in the center, middle, moderate zones. And there's far more people in that zone than there are people in the extremes. This is an important concept to understand. And I keep trying to get this across to people. But but it seems that when people are so committed to an idea, 
they lose the ability to think critically about anything going on on their side of the equation. And this is where we lose our damn minds. We have got to get better about this. So when it comes to woke, okay, you can look this up, by the way. This is a term that was developed within the African-American community to describe waking up and being aware of the fact that there is gross racial discrimination and has been for a very long time. And this goes all the way back to the 1930s and 40s as a term. This term was appropriated by white people, right? More recently, as a result of the um, Ferguson uh, problems and the the Black Lives Matter movement and a whole lot of... uh, realization by white people that there were racial inequities in this world and in this country. Yeah, surprise, there are. Um, And so this term woke started being appropriated, (laughs) ironically, by the people who started feeling really, really guilty about the fact that there was all this racial inequity. Well, you can feel guilty about it or you can go do something about it. But calling everybody else names isn't really doing something about it. That's not affecting societal change. That's developing and fomenting hatred. And the left does it and the right does it. They both do. It's a fact, okay? I'm not, this isn't like, anyway. So when you ask me, um, you know, it's the thoughts that this anti-woke crowd is starting to get really culty. Well, you're absolutely right. There is cult-like behavior on the anti-woke side. That's generally, from what I'm observing, from what I'm seeing and hearing and talking to people about, a reactionary movement to the left, the far left, taking these concepts and running way too far with them socially to the point where we have cancel culture. It's not an imaginary thing. It does happen. It happens on both ends. They might call it different things, but it's a thing. Cancel culture is really no no different than the cultic behavior of shunning, disconnection, you're evil, you're bad, therefore you are to be eradicated out of existence. I would rather have you dead, gone, nullified completely, destroyed, rather than continue to exist because you are so awful. When I'm using the term cancel culture or talking about this tendency of people to act this way, That's what I'm referring to, and you all know what I'm talking about. And we decry it when Scientologists do it. We say it's awful when cultists do it, and then we go do it, right? We do it to people we disagree with ideologically, religiously, um, even, you know, even cinematically, right? Even movies. I mean, this touches everything. And it's a real kind of mind virus because it it is a... an instrument of extremism when it gets to the level where we have to destroy the people who represent these ideas that we disagree with or we think represent these ideas that we disagree with. The fact of the matter is that most people just want to get along and they want to just be left alone and they just want to live their lives. But here come all these people from the far left saying, oh, no, 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 you're all racists. In fact, you're all so racist, you don't even know you're racist. And here's these people going, what? I I didn't really think that's what was going on. I I don't hate anybody. I don't want to hurt anybody. Oh, no, 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 you're racist. And until you own your racism, you're going to continue to be a bad person. 
And this is, and the anti-woke crowd, and this is just one manifestation of, of this woke far left nonsense. So the people on the right go, well, that's not true to me. I don't understand that. That doesn't make any sense to me. Why are you calling me a racist? I've never done anything racist. And I'm, that's not what I'm about. Now, the real racists, the guys who are on the far right, I'm talking KKK, the neo-Nazis, the guys who absolutely want to incite a race war, they do acknowledge they're racists. (laughs) They know they're racists. They're proud of it. Their whole goal is to incite a race war. They want everybody to be racist like they are. Meanwhile, these people on the far left are like, oh, God, I had racist thoughts and racist ideas because black people or Hispanic people or Chinese people or whoever, non-white people, make me nervous, make me upset, make me concerned for my safety. Ooh, wow, I'm a racist. You know, they follow down the Robin D'Angelo rabbit hole and they, uh, you know, then project that onto everybody. And they're just as bad as the guys on the far right. Oh, everybody's racist. Everybody's just like me. It's projection, right? Both sides are doing this. And, you know, when you sit in the middle and kind of look at this and you just go, man, this is some really extreme behavior. And it's the behavior that I'm really trying to comment on here more so than the thought processes or the ideas behind them. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with pushing anti-racist messaging or slogans or ideas. Obviously, that's, that's pro-human rights. But people can get so caught up in their rightness over that that they will start doing things that don't make any damn sense. Violent things, really bad things. The whole shunning and disconnection is just the beginning. The riots that we saw during the... Um, Oh God, what was that? Summer 2020, right? During the BLM riots. And I made, I did podcasts about this at that time because I was like, holy cow, this has gotten out of hand. This is just taking this whole thing way too far. And it was because we had people on the far left saying, this isn't violence. This is, this is racial equality at work. You know, this is people who have justifiable grievances and to hell with those store owners and to hell with capitalism and to hell with our society and to hell with the police and to hell with the government because we're right and all of you are wrong. That's culty behavior, guys. It's just as crazy as what the KKK and the neo-Nazis get up to when they are talking about we have to destroy all the black people. We have to burn down uh, all the immigrants, we have to uh, destroy all of them. It's better to shoot them all than let them into the country, these undocumented illegal aliens, you know, and all this rhetoric that goes on over there, which is incendiary nonsense. And it's very, very, very concerning. Again, both ends of this are very concerning. And I, ho- I hope I'm getting that across. This is, you know, these are the kind of words that will tend to get people canceled on both ends that I'm saying right now. And if you feel that suddenly I've become this evil troll who doesn't know what I'm talking about and how could I, then I would invite you to please, please take a good hard look at what I'm actually saying. Because no part of what I'm saying is that human rights are bad or wrong. And you all know I'm all about human rights. But it's very, very hard to enter the public discourse on this without claiming one side or the other, because otherwise you're just going to get shot by both sides. And that is a very, very difficult place to be as a public figure and as somebody who's trying to 
maybe trying to, you know, mediate or bring some calm to this situation. We are so divided right now over this kind of nonsense. And woke is just another term, one of hundreds of such words that come and go in the common vernacular to describe a position which can be, which can represent an extreme position or it can represent a more moderate, rational position. But the word itself becomes a sort of catch-all for all of it. And so when the people on the left are talking about woke and the people on the right are talking about woke, they're actually talking about two different things. And they refuse to have dialogue or try to understand each other. And when that happens, that's when the fists come out. That's when, the, that's when the baseball bats and the knives and the guns come out. Because you won't understand me, you won't understand me, and you're just evil, and I have to destroy you now. And both there are people on both ends of this nonsense who feel that way. And when you try to talk sense to them, they won't listen. I have tried for years. And there's just a certain set of people who just don't want to hear any criticism of their own side. They don't want to hear how they maybe should dial it back a little bit, bring down the volume a little bit, and let's actually talk. And it can work to do that. And again, I'm going to cite Daryl Davis as the epitome, the, 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 just the, 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 the absolute best example of what I'm talking about, right? A black man who can reach across the aisle and actually make friends with KKK members and get them to take their goddamn robes off and quit it. How did he do that? He never did it by calling them names and accusing them of racism and sexism and bigotry. and all. That's not the conversation he has with them. He has a conversation that starts with, you don't even know me. Why do you hate me? Why? What is up with that? And that starts a dialogue. And if you're willing to have that dialogue, you can make incredible progress. But when you refuse, when you won't have it, when you don't have it, when you say it can't be had, and I've had way too many conversations with people who are representative of Antifa in America. I'm not talking about European Antifa. I'm talking about the American brand of that. I have had way too many run-ins with those people to have any question anymore that they are an extremist group. Same thing with the guys on the right, right? You You know I'm not down with those guys either. So, you know, but trying to be the moderate middle voice of reason on this is an impossible job. So that's my sort of dialogue about this. Now, to answer your questions, Jonathan, in terms of, um, you know, no one can even define what it means. Well, you're absolutely right. Go to the Wikipedia page on the term woke and it says right in it. There is no agreed upon definition of this term because it's in the cultural vernacular now where everybody thinks they know exactly what it is and they have their own ideas and definitions of it. And for the guys on the right, that's valid. For the guys on the left, their version is valid. All of it was appropriated from the black community who originally had a very clear cut idea of what it was. So you really need, if you're going to argue, you need to find your terms. It's kind of a really important point here because it really depends on who you're talking to as to what this word actually represents to that person. Um, As far as the thought-stopping cliche, I think I've covered that. Yes, thought-stopping cliches are absolutely insidious and there are 
just legions of them on both ends of this thing. Um, now, the Silicon Valley Bank thing, right, went under because they went woke. Now, what that's actually a reference to is it's a complete nonsense, but the idea here is that there is this diversity, um, equality, inclusion, these DEI policies that are now rampant throughout the United States, and this is sort of the latest version of what we used to call affirmative action. And it's an effort to regulate behavior and because you cannot um, deal with individuals who are prejudiced, who really are truly bigoted, racist, sexist. Those people exist. They've always existed and they're always going to exist. Human beings are just who and what they are. And a certain set, a certain percentage of any group of people are going to be these lunatic fringe element types for lots of different reasons, cultural, uh, educational, um, social, right? Their social hierarchies, their location, where they grow up, who, who their influences are. There's a lot of reasons people are racist, sexist, bigoted, etc. Um, and it's just a fact that that's always going to be that way because of the way our brains work and the way we categorize people and things and the amount of brain power we're willing to give to questions like this. Some people, they don't want to think about it anymore. They know what's true. They know what's right. And there's no other argument to be had about it, right? There's no more reason to discuss it. Such people are of limited, I believe, a limited degree of uh, sociality and and maybe you might say intelligence, although that's a term that's itself a little difficult to define if you start thinking about it. Um, but that exists. That's always going to exist. So how do you deal with it? Well, human beings aren't so great at dealing with these outliers in big, broad situations where it has consequences to lots and lots of people. If you have a racist or a sexist as the head of a company, you're going to have problems in that company, serious problems and very real world problems. This is no, uh, you know, I definitely acknowledge that that is absolutely the case. So what do you do about it? Well, you can't, no, there is no recognized, agreed upon way of Daryl Davising that guy or that woman. There, right? there's, no, there's nobody who's going to come along and solve that problem for people. So instead, we fall back on regulations and guidelines and policies and rules. And we say, well, nobody gets to be that way. And in fact, it's so bad, we think, that we're going to regulate in order to force equality, we're going to regulate that you have quotas now of X number of uh, this minority and that minority that you have to bring in because we're going to force you to do that because these guys over here and over here and over here refuse to take part in our collective equality. And so we're going to force everybody to now follow these somewhat bizarre and... Um, unrealistic ideas of how we're going to force equality across the boards. And it's not like it's the worst solution ever. It's a solution to a problem, and it has a degree of legitimacy to it. It does help solve certain problems in certain areas, but it also causes whole other problems to pop up. And when somebody is, again, in this far left or far right headspace where it's their way or the highway, they can't hear any objective criticism or questioning of these kind of DEI policies. They refuse to acknowledge that any problem could ever come from this solution. It's only a perfect solution. And that's just not true.
So one of the things that was coming up in the news uh, for the guys on the right were, well, Silicon Valley Bank was making incredibly poor investment decisions. That's an objective fact. And they crashed. And one of that was one of the big reasons why they crashed. Banks crash all the time. We were overdue for some bank crashing. Now we'll see where this goes because human panic sets in. And that's when you get runs on banks and things start having this domino effect. And I really hope that doesn't happen here Um, because that's just human nature running amok. That's fear and fear mongering. And that's what happens around these kinds of economic turmoil times. And we're in one of those right now. Um, So the reason that the right started saying that the Silicon Valley Bank went woke and that's why they failed. And it's not why they failed. But the reason they say that is because Silicon Valley Bank was following certain DEI policies. And as I see, see, that's what happens, right? It's just more nonsense, you know, from the far right. Um, so that's, yeah, so those are your questions, Jonathan. And I think I've explained my myself well enough here. I, I really hope this gets across to people. I think you guys understand where I'm coming from. And, you know, you can always ask me more questions about this or have me clarify my my statements, if I've said something that seems completely off the rails and offensive to you, uh, please do reach out to me and let me know because um, that's not my goal, right? My goal is to provide a sort of a more centered view of what's going on here as I see it from the, you know, my position of understanding how cults and, and coercive control work. So, so yes, so there's my answer. Sam Leaptrot. I'm not sure if you've talked about this before, but how the hell do you audit a body thetan? How similar would that be to auditing a different person? From what I remember, and I could be wrong, you hold the cans yourself and read the meter and adjust your auditing accordingly, right? How exactly can you tell if you are auditing yourself or the thetans? When you audit someone else, are you auditing their thetans, perhaps unknowingly if you are not OT? Or how exactly does all this work? Oh, Sam, you want me to explain all the OT levels to you in one answer to one question on my Q&A show? That's a little silly. But here's what I can tell you about this, right? In summary version or in summary form, um, body thetans are a collection of spiritual entities that are attached to you or creating your body or your view or perception of your body. It's It's a very, very vague sort of description of things. Hubbard was not, you know, super, super clear about lots of things. And body thetans are very confusing when you dive into the actual materials of Scientology and try to figure it out. Now, the, now the, the answer to your question of how do you audit a body thetan is, well, there's lots of ways to do it. At first, Hubbard was, dis, was uh, back in 1967, Hubbard was saying you use Dianetic procedures. You run them just like you run an engram. You contact a point around you of pressure or sensitivity. You're using the e-meter and it's sort of needle responses to guide you. Oh, is there a pressure? Oh, there's a pressure. Okay. Where is it? Oh, it's here. Okay. And the needle's kind of bopping around and you're using these random ticks of the needle to determine, oh, here's a body thetan right here. And this body thetan represents a problem I'm having. So therefore I will deal with it that way. Or you have a body thetan over here, and it needs to be run through incident two. Well, I will contact it, and I will then sort of telepathically drag it through the incident and make it recall and remember the incident of Xenu and the body thetans. 
Uh, or you can apply another procedure to it called date locate, where you date and locate using the e-meter and its responses. When did this Thetan become part of the cluster of Thetans that are attached to me? And you get an exact date. Is this, and you figure it out using the e-meter and its responses. You'll find out first when, uh, what, what's the order of magnitude of the date? Is it days, months, years, tens of years, hundreds of years, thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years, tens of millions of years, hundreds of millions of years, billions of years? You see, you keep going back until the needle, you know, twitches on one of those orders of magnitude. And you go, oh, it was hundreds of thousands of years ago. That's when this body Phaeton became attached to me. Hundreds of thousands of years ago. Okay, good. How many hundreds of thousands of years ago? Was it less than 500,000 years ago? Was it more than 500,000 years ago? Doink. Ah, it was more than 500,000 years ago. Was it greater than 750,000 years ago? Was it lesser than 750,000 years ago? Was it 750,000 years ago? This is a whole process. I'm kind of walking you through it, right? This is how you establish, you zoom in on a very specific date in time when this body Thetan was connected to you. And then you locate where it happened. Not You're not locating yourself now. You're locating where you were when this body Thetan attached itself to you. And you do this by pointing or by figuring out an exact place. Was this a planet? Was it this? Was it that? There's a whole process to this. It's called date locate. That itself is a whole procedure. Maybe that's how you deal with the body Thetan. Different levels on the OT levels and different procedures that you run on those OT levels will determine which process or method you're going to use. And there's lots of them. I've just given you a couple right now, right? Because originally Hubbard said that you run him out with Dianetics, but then Shortly thereafter, he was like, oh, no, 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 no. In the early 70s, he was like, nope, nope, nope. We can't use Dianetics on, on Thetans anymore. We can't use them on people who have achieved the state of clear or above. No more Dianetics for you guys. We're not going to run engrams. That's bad. And one of the reasons for that is because it would become you'd become confused as to which engram or whose engrams you were running. Is it the body Thetans or is it mine? Ugh, I can't tell, right? Don't know. If this all sounds super arcane and insane, it is, <laughs> but that's Scientology. And that's what these OT levels are all about, is learning all these different processes and procedures for breaking down body thetans, locating them, running them, running them through imaginary incidents, and uh, thereby releasing them from you, exorcising them, if you will, so they're no longer there. Okay, I, you know, I, I never ran the OT levels myself, so I didn't personally experience do, excuse me, doing any of this. Um, but I've read about it. I pulled up the issues on this before I answered your question here, just to kind of go through some of them. And this is the kind of stuff that you find. Um, as far as when you're auditing someone else, or you're auditing their their thetans, uh, you know, perhaps unknowingly, yeah. Absolutely. That's one of the things that people who get to the OT levels realize is that, oh, at the lower levels, you're not just running your own incidents. You could be running body thetans on stuff. You could be running stuff that is mistaken for uh, one of your body thetans and their history, not your history, theirs. 
And this can become very jumbled and confused. People at lower levels don't know about body fat, and so they're not thinking about things that way. But people at the OT, who get on the OT levels learn about this and go, oh, my God, this could become a whole problem at the lower levels, blah, 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 blah. And if you really start thinking this through, it gets extremely crazy-making extremely quickly. And you could call into question every single thing you've ever run and was it yours or was it somebody else's? And this is kind of what OT8 is sort of about sorting out for an OT8 is looking back at and deciding was that mine or was that a body thetans or was it something else and trying to sort of let go of that. And the idea, I think, in putting OT8 together was to sort of resolve some of these questions, but it just makes it worse because Scientology is always worse than you think. And that's, uh, you know, I laugh about it, but it really is crazy making stuff. So that's what I can answer your question here with today. Ryan N. I was wondering what some of your favorite books are from ex-Scientologists that may not get as much of a look in these days compared to the more popular ones. I just finished reading Jenna Miscavige's book, but hadn't heard it mentioned all too much in the last few years. I'd be very interested if there's a resource or database that compiles all the books written by ex-Scientologists, though I'm not sure such a thing exists. What are some of your favorites? Okay, there are a there are so many books written by former Scientologists, academics, journalists, etc. about the subject of Scientology that I don't really have favorites. I do have works that I prefer to refer people to, uh, namely my book and John Atak's book, A Piece of Blue Sky, or the full title, Let's Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky. As far as I'm concerned, John Atak is the OG on this, and his book is the best, most researched, and uh, sort of comprehensive baseline of this is what Scientology is all about, and this is what L. Ron Hubbard was all about, and this is why you should stay the hell away from it. Um, a lot of people, as, I, as you may have heard when I've talked with John about this, uh, in the various podcasts we've done, he has you know not been shy about the fact that um, various people over the years have basically just ripped him off and taken his work and, and basically plagiarized it for their own uses. And uh, we don't have to get into that right now any more than that. But that's why I always go back to John's work. He has been one of the most uh, go-to thorough researchers on this topic that's ever existed. Um, Russell Miller's book, of course, Barefaced Messiah, you know, based a lot on John's stuff, but it's it's a rip-roaring uh, book that explores L. Ron Hubbard's entire life. And, uh, and it is the, bio the biography of L. Ron Hubbard that, that really stands the test of time. So that's a book I absolutely recommend as well. But all of the books that people have written, Amy's book, uh, Tony Ortega's book, Jenna's book, Mark Headley's book, uh, Mike Rinder's book. I mean, there are, you know, there's so many out there. The, Leah's book, even Troublemaker, right? I mean, all of these are really, really good. Um, I, I, you know, so that's why I say I can't really choose favorites. I mean, Janice has written this three volume epic of like every single detail from her entire life. It's a little bit, you know, much, but it does tell a very detailed account of growing up right under L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, so there's Commodore's Messenger, right? Again, three part series. Um, you know, there's probably books coming in the future. So we'll see what comes of this. I, you know, if you're going to ask me about Scientology books, I'm going to push mine. 
I mean, because my book is a memoir. It's a critical analysis of Scientology. And for me, that's the value of talking about or looking at Scientology. It's, you know, people's stories are interesting, but at the end of the day, it's one person's story. Let's take a look at the topic itself and really break it down. And what can you learn from that so you don't fall into not only Scientology, but you don't fall into any degree of extremist beliefs or thinking because you understand how it happens and you understand why it happens. That, to me, is the most valuable part of looking into this whole world. It amazes me that there are people who are into this because they're rubbernecking. It, it bothers me, really. You know, if you're, if, if, and, and I get it, people do that, and I can't change that, but it does bother me. So um, anyway, so those, that's my answer to the question is, uh, is all of them are good. They all serve a very, you know, a purpose or a function in, in telling the whole story of Scientology and the experiences of it. So, um, so I recommend you check them all out. Logamug. Words like clear, reasonable, and squirrel have very different and serious meanings for Scientologists. Are there any other words or ideas that also have been redefined in this way? All right, thanks for asking about this. I'll give you two words that come to mind right away on uh, words that are redefined in Scientology with always with a little spin or a little curve. Uh, one of them I've commented on many times, which is the word critical. If you are critical in Scientology, that is a very specific idea that you are fault-finding or you are complaining or naysaying or being like, you know, complainy about something, nattery about something. I'm critical. I don't like that. And that is indicative in Scientology of overts on your part toward the thing you're being critical of. That is a hard-bound rule in Scientology. It is the only reason why you would be critical of something. Unless, of course, you're being critical of something L. Ron Hubbard has approved of you being critical of, like psychiatry. You can trash psychiatry and psychiatrists up one side and down the other. You can be as critical as you want of them, and Scientologists will not blink an eye. But if you're critical of L. Ron Hubbard in any way, if you are critical of David Miscavige in any way, Scientology or its principles or its actions, you have overts, my friend. You have moral transgressions that you better, better confess right now. So it's a little selective in, its, uh, in, in how the word critical is applied. Now, another fun one and actually really disturbing one is the word responsibility. And I actually pulled it up here out of the Technical Dictionary of Dianetics to, and Scientology to read you a couple of the definitions of the term. And then I'll share one that's not here, which I was hoping to find, but which is even crazier. And first off, responsibility is, one, the ability and willingness to assume the status of full source and cause for all efforts and counter efforts on all dynamics. Pretty embraceive idea. Dynamics, of course, being all of life. When we say on all dynamics, we mean across the entire spectrum of existence, from yourself as an individual all the way to God and everything in between. That's all dynamics. So responsibility in Scientology is somehow the ability and willingness to assume the status of full source and cause for all efforts and counter efforts 
everything on all sides of the equation, in other words, you're supposed to be willing and uh, and have the ability to accept that you're the one who caused all of it. All the efforts, all the counter efforts, it's all on you. That's the first definition. That's out of uh, uh, Advanced Procedure and Axioms, uh, which was written in 1951, by the way. Um, when one speaks of responsibility, this also comes out of that same book. When one speaks of responsibility, he means the determination of the cause which produced the effect. Okay. Full responsibility is not fault. It is recognition of being cause. Okay. You kind of get the idea here. It's putting you in the driver's seat 100% for everything. And another later definition of responsibility, and I'm only going to paraphrase this because I'm remembering it out of my head here, of course, is the non-recognition and denial of the right of intervention between oneself and any object, space, time, life, being, or form. The non-recognition and denial of the right of intervention between oneself and any thing, life, being, form, space, time, whatever, right? So what, what the hell are you saying there? Again, you're kind of rewording this, but in a really kind of twisted way. The non-recognition and denial of the right of intervention. In other words, no one can intervene between you and anything you, you are accepting full cause over. Right? No one can intervene. That's a weird idea. That is an extremely weird idea if you actually take that apart. Uh, Scientologists will tend to take that idea and merge it with this other idea of full cause. And you kind of get how insanely embraceive that is. When we talk about how Scientologists sort of have this goal or this idea that they are going to become God, this word responsibility and the definitions of it sort of encapsulate that concept. That's what Hubbard's really saying, is that you are God. You are source. You are the cause of everything. And you only have to assume a willingness to do that or have that ability in order to realize your full potential. It was always you. Everything that happened ever to anybody, anywhere, it was always you, see? Yeah, that's Scientology. All right, so we went on at as much such a mad rate about all that, that that's all I'm going to do for this week. We won't have flash answers, but I would appreciate if you all have any flash answer questions for me to send them to me, uh, preferably by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com so I can fill up my queue with uh, flash answers or shorter answer questions uh, as well as, of course, these more long, complete diatribes I get to go on. All right, I hope you enjoyed the show this week. I hope that my answers were informative, educational, and entertaining. And uh, if they were, of course, you can always support the show through Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, etc. And, of course, I have to plug, if you are looking for or need any consultation in regards to the area of coercive control in your life or the life of others around you, say you know people who are falling into a bad relationship or coercive control situation with a cult or something like that, maybe I can help. 
You can contact me for professional help on that. It is not therapy that I am offering. I am crystal clear about that. It is not, I'm not going to treat you as a psychologist. That's not my thing. That's not what I'm doing. Uh, that's not the kind of psych, you know, that's not the kind of psychology I studied or know, but I can definitely advise and consult and maybe help people understand the situation that they're in and how to do something about it. All right. I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.